Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. I'd like to let everyone know that this podcast will be moving to a weekly format starting next week. So our next episode will be with Diana Negroponte on April 28th. We hope you'll keep an eye and ear out for us on Spotify, iTunes, and all our other platforms. Now back to today's episode. So hello, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Joining us today is my friend, Paul O'Brien. Paul has over three decades of experience as an international activist, including serving as an appointed advisor to Afghan President Ashraf Ghani to help with reconstruction efforts in Afghanistan. Building off his career in international activism, Paul recently wrote a book entitled Power Switch, How We Can Reverse Extreme Inequality, which is volume five of a larger series on resetting our future. In the book, Paul discusses how COVID-19 can be leveraged to make substantial, positive, and sustainable change to the international order to address overwhelming global inequalities. Paul also provides specific actions international activists can and should take. Paul, thanks for doing this. Thanks for joining my podcast. Glad you're here. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Always good to talk to you. Why did you write this book? Because of the moment, I wrote it over the summer. I started to get the feeling that Biden and Harris were probably going to squeak out the win on the presidential election. But I was far from confident that if they won, they were going to do enough to actually deal with the fact that we had significant power asymmetry problems in the world, which is a fancy way of saying there are too few people who have far too much both power and wealth and not enough people who have the tools to be able to survive crisis. I also felt 2021 was going to be a year of converging crisis, and it was either going to get a lot worse for people on the wrong end of vulnerability, or potentially it could get better. When you have the title power switch, what does that mean? Well, I work in a sector that's very uncomfortable with the word power. We talk a lot in development about empowering people, but anytime I hear somebody say, I'm interested in empowering people, I will ask them, so who's going to lose power in your scenario? And they always tell me, oh, no, no, we don't need anyone to lose power for people to be empowered. And there's something problematic in that for me. Because I think there are certain forms of power, which is often in economic terms and in political terms, that if you really want somebody to get more of either political power or economic well-being, it's got to come from somewhere. It's got to come from a more accountable institution or in the wealth space, it's got to come from new sources of wealth or from sources of wealth being redistributed. And the fact that my community is uncomfortable talking about that kind of power transfer made me say, look, I want to put out an idea there that we've got to stop just talking about empowerment, where you're empowering the world against no one, versus actually thinking about rethinking who ought to have more power and who ought to have less. So how did COVID-19 impact your book? Well, big time. One of the big lessons is that power switches happen in moments of significant and deep disruption, both for better and worse. And people can argue over which ones were were better or worse. But what COVID did was sort of concentrate the minds on the fact that we are seeing convergent crisis 
that in economic and development terms, in political terms, the end of 2019, before COVID started, I was writing about the fact that people were giving up faith in democratic processes all around the world, engaging in protests, increasingly violent forms of protest, which was met with increasingly violent forms of repression. We've got climate change, which is creating all sorts of new vulnerabilities. And we've got all issues of, of, of racial injustice and identity conflicts all around the world. So we, what COVID has done is land in the middle of all of that and exacerbated in many contexts. You paint a pretty dire picture. What are the stakes about not doing something about the, the problems that you, you lay out in the book? Well, I talk about that in the book too. I, I, it won't go well. It certainly won't go well for people who are vulnerable, but it won't go well for the institutions that are supposed to be doing something about it. I think if, if either on the multilateral level or bilateral donor level, in the finance space or in the development space, if folks think they can bring incremental changes to meet the challenge of this moment, it's going to not just be bad for development outcomes and economic well-being of an awful lot of people in the tune of billions, uh, but it's not going to go well for those institutions. A lot of our multilateral institutions now are septuagenarian. They're creaking along. They're increasingly questioned as relevant. China is waiting for no one, as you often write eloquently, in terms of how they'd like to see power distributed in the world. And uh, the, the, the sort of the post-World War II, Bretton Woods, United Nations, and other institutions will not emerge in the next few years, more relevant uh, or more effective. It will, it will go badly. Yeah, it's like throwing gasoline on the fire. Well, essentially, if you grasp the fact that moments of disruption is where you can actually get a lot of stuff done, then if there is leadership capable of showing enough ambition, next year there could be an appetite, a political appetite, for transformative agendas. And so that means big ambitions in the financing space. As you well know, it's very hard to convince folks in times of stability that we need massive investments overseas. It's very hard to get folks in the institutions to accept that we're going to need new financing tools. But right now, we're having conversations about things you can do with debt, things you can do with special drawing rights, things you can do with global taxes that are really creative and potentially transformative. And even on the aid side, where nobody argues that we don't need a scale-up in aid, the question is, is, will we be able to extract that kind of levels of investment from the current political debates? One of the things I was struck by in the book was your reference to sort of younger activists or a younger generation. I'm in the golden warm September of my years. I barely understand millennials, and I sure as hell don't understand Gen Z folks, Zoomers. So could you talk about that? Because it seemed to me that you seem to be either spending a lot of time with these youngsters. They seem to have a different mindset and sort of there's a lot of assumptions in here about that they've got a different approach and that that matters because that's a universe I don't intersect with. And so I'd be curious if you could talk a little bit more about that. You're humble, Dan, but I think a lot of the things that you argue do actually resonate. And I am definitely in the September years, too. But I work in an organization both filled with younger brilliant minds, and also that is committed to working with members and supporters who are young activists. So I get exposed to the ideas that they bring. I think one of the things they want is a new set of starting point questions before we get into what the big fixes are. They come out of the postmodern mentality, but they ask questions before they get to, well, hold on, before we transfer 
wealth from one place to another or change the rules. Who's doing it? Why are they doing it? What's their history? What's their agenda? And how are relationships between various groups going to be changed as a consequence, either intentionally or as a byproduct? So there's a lot of talk about decolonizing aid. What does decolonizing aid mean? I think a lot of it is about checking the mindset. With young activists and you say, do you think that the world is a better place if everybody just goes home and ignores each other? Absolutely not. They're in contact with activists all around the world, engaging in new forms of partnerships. What they object to is the notion that we've got a whole set of solutions in NGOs that are going to export their brilliance and their ideas to a bunch of unsuspecting countries and folks who will then be the lucky charitable recipients of it as some kind of passive-aggressive, ongoing tradition of colonial behavior. They're tired of it. And the people they're talking to in these countries are saying, I'm sorry, we really don't need you to teach us how to fish anymore, okay? (laughs) My line is, it's not your grandparents' developing world. It's richer, freer, more capable, with more agency and more options. What I've said to presidential candidates and policymakers is, if we don't meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries, they'll take their business to the Chinese. Yes. So, okay, so let's talk about China because China's in the book a little bit, but as someone who's kind of like has China on the brain, like it it wasn't kind of feeding my China hunger. So tell me, how does China fit into this conversation? Well, I think first it's already there and it's got a plan and it's pretty clear what the plan is. So the question at some level for me is if you're a progressive activist and you want to contribute to a forward-leaning and relevant development agenda, what are you going to do about China? And you've got, in my view, a lot of our conversation, certainly in Washington, but even in the NGO world, has been a little short-sighted and perhaps not ambitious enough in providing, as you say, an alternative offer to developing country governments and civil society that now really have China on the doorstep, providing financing at scale, infrastructure at scale, opportunities for trade investment. I mean, if you look at the quarter-on-quarter growth this year of China, they're doing fine. Okay, so here's another question. When you talk to the young, is the finger on the scale, I mean, your finger on on the scale is of democracy and markets, sort of an enlightened market capitalism with values and a social safety net and dealing with some of the problems of market capitalism. You're basically, you're saying, and some of the intermediate institutions either to be updated or renewed. Is that, am I putting words in your mouth? Is that fair? Or transformed, because they just aren't capable of addressing the needs of the moment. But yes, that's essentially fair. I do believe that markets should exist, but need to be regulated. And I mean, in the progressive world, which I like to think I'm a part of, that's a source of debate. Like, are markets per se bad? I happen to think they're not. I happen to think they don't self-regulate very well, and the corporations don't self-correct very well. I think they've accumulated so much power now that if we don't regulate them, it won't be good for most people. If you had a room of these progressive activists and they said, and I I mean this, are you okay with a world run by China? What would they say to that? No, they would say they're not. But what they would say is you got to break it out because right now, look, nobody thinks that what China is doing with its own populations or on political rights is a good thing in progressive circles, whether Africa or Latin America or Washington or Europe. But what people are increasingly frustrated by on the economic side is the false promise of unregulated capitalism to give them enough economic opportunity to lift themselves out of poverty. We just published a report yesterday as Oxfam that of the more than $11 trillion that governments have spent 
on providing some level of COVID protection for their populations. A third of the world got zip, nothing, no protection from their governments. So I've had 500 Zoom phone calls. I feel like I'm global services on Zoom or executive platinum on Zoom. Do I get a prize for that, Paul? Do I get something? Do I get like a coffee mug or something? Could someone give me like a Zoom coffee mug? I need something for my 500 Zoom call. Dan's deep thoughts after 500 Zoom calls. Okay, so the first one is whatever Dan or Paul's social capital was on March 12th is kind of what it is today. Like you can make new connections on Zoom, but I think is you in psychologically or anthropologically, we actually have to have people to people. You can kind of do this, but it's harder, right? And so I feel bad for young people, I'll put that in quotes, who are starting out in their careers who don't have a social network, professional networks, I think it's particularly challenging in this environment because of doing all the zooming around stuff. So that's my first deep thought. My second deep thought is, and I think we're going to use all sorts of technology, you know, pheno think tanky terms like supply chain resilience or whatever. But I think there's going to be tectonic shifts in trade flows subtly, but real. I think it's going to drag new potential trade agreements. So I think you could see a new regional hemispheric trade agreement in the Americas. Every trade agreement has had a geoeconomic or geopolitical push behind it. And the geoeconomic, geopolitical push is going to be like, I don't want to be dependent on China ever again. I hope we return to some kind of a TPP because of this. I also think you could see some kind of deal with Africa, like a trade deal with Africa because of this. Maybe. I'm just, this is all, you know, this is all virtual Ivy Tower stuff. That's my second deep thought. So you're going to see shifts in supply chains where there's some beneficiaries. Central America could be a beneficiary. The Caribbean could be a beneficiary. Mexico could be a beneficiary. Other poor parts of the world could be, and we should use ODA as the grease the skids for that. That's my deep thought. There's been more e-commerce, e-government, digital payments, and distance learning in the last 34 weeks than in the last 34 years. Not just here, but in the developing world. Like I'm on the board of a Ghanaian university called the Shesi, and they're doing it in kind of not as super easy as you and I are, but doing it on not the latest generation iPhone going to class. It's hard. So this is a thing for everybody. If you want to have modernity in the future, you're going to need literacy, toilets, drinking water, electricity, and then you're going to need high-speed internet. And either the West is going to solve that problem or someone else is going to solve the problem, but it's going to get solved. So those are my deep thoughts. What do you think about my deep thoughts? I love your deep thoughts, but I'm going to put a power switch lens on each of them. I like it. I like it. Okay. Super fast. I don't know that I agree with you about your first one. I think that is an inner debate that you're having between what you said at the beginning of the call. I don't know if we were recording, but how you now don't eat. Uh, Turn the screen off. And your life is. Yeah, yeah, better. Yeah. Well, I think you're having an inner debate because I will tell you, I mean, I think I've seen you in both and I've had the privilege of having, you know, one-on-one yeah, yeah. breakfast, but I will say, I also know you're a convener. I think Zoom is equalizing the discussion space in a power sense. Oh, I think that's, that's true. Really interesting. Okay. I'm buying that. I'm buying that. Okay. I buy that. I buy okay, that. You- when I pitch business, when I sell like, Hey, give me some money to fund my project work. I say the bad news is we're stuck in our basements on Zoom, but the good news is we're stuck in our basements on Zoom because before, if you wanted to have a conference at Oxfam in London, everyone had to fly in. Who's doing this DVC stuff, this video chat stuff? No one's doing that. But because of this, everyone has to do it. And so it's, it is small D democratic. I agree with that. And it's quite convenient for a lot of certain things like that. I agree with that. 
and global connectivity. We, I mean, this, I spent this morning all this talking heads same size. Our partners are the same size as the CEO, and everybody's playing by the rules. You know, and just on that, I don't have to go prostrate myself and go through all the stupid security things to go to the hill to see hill yeah. staffers or yeah. high-level staffers in the Department of State. Part of the yeah. perk of having one of those jobs is you have to go through these horrible, you know, the indignities of going through all the security stuff. It's almost like security theater. I hate it. So this is much more convenient. Okay, now if you have the relationships and you got to sell a party, you've got something to sell, it works. Yes. But Zoom is an equalizer. I'm buying that. I do think that the challenge for the United States is, are we going to try and play China at the old game, which is since 1980, economic growth and how you can create as much of it as possible is the only real show in town and we can create more of it than you. Or do we concede that it's time to change the game? Because they're actually going to outgrow us for the foreseeable future. And if it's just about counting that, we're in trouble. But if we're trying to deal with the fact that we are running up against resource constraints of all sorts, planetary, minerals, and others, and it's about regulating the rules and changing basically what the game is so that it's a race to... The big debate with China is always, are we actually in a great game that is a race to the bottom where there's going to be lots of collateral damage? Or can we actually challenge them in a race to the top where we decide what the game is? And if we could do that and you play on the United States' greatest strengths, I think it could be really good to have China being pushed and pushing us. But we won't beat them if it's just like unregulated economic growth and who do you know in a ministry because they will have bigger checkbooks. And they they don't play by the Marquis of Queensbury rules. Exactly. So I did something on this in April and Samantha Power actually picked up on this too. Great minds, I guess. Uh, that I think we got to get back at the front of the parade on anti-corruption work, not because it's the right thing to do, but because of great power competition. I think the optimist in me, because I have been pretty doomsy. Yeah, this is a dude. This was like a super doomsy ish. It's smart. It's interesting. It's not where I'm at, but it forced me to think. And that's why I wanted to do this. And I bought your book. Maybe it's doomsy ish to get people to change. Is that why you took a doomsy ish? Yeah. Yeah, approach. It does get a little more optimistic. And I actually quote, I mean, it got so optimistic towards the end that my main quote, you know how you have a quote at the beginning of the book? Yeah, 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 yeah. My main quote is, most pessimists are right, most optimists are wrong, but most of the good stuff ends up being done by optimists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. That's Tom Friedman, right? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. good. That's It's a good quote. I do like it. So and when I start to get optimistic, it's the same as in a way as the last points you make. And I think they are real epiphanies. I would describe them, because I'm a sort of into this power lexicon, as in phenomenal democratizing forces. E-commerce and what is going on and the fact that the whole game is going to focus around who's creating the electronic and internet rules, access, technology, and institutions. They are potentially the new transformative democratizing forces in our world. I mean, there is this story to be told that we are now, and this election... Somebody's unhappy, somebody's happy. But it was without doubt a different level of public engagement on all. 70% voter turnout. Yeah. Historic, more than 100 years. You had some interesting solutions, Paul. I'm actually coming around to the idea we're probably going to have to spend more money, 10, 20, 30%, 40% more money in our foreign aid budget from a great power competition place. I wouldn't have said this six months ago or a year ago. So that on itself, I kind of did an article about what gaming out, what's it cost to pay for every person to get a vaccine in the world, you know, and, you know, we've spent 20 billion on polio since 1988. That's globally. 
The yeah. United States alone in the last 20 years has spent $100 billion on PEPFAR. I think it's somewhere, depending on we're paying for cold chains or not, it, that's kind of a, a range. I know that's a big range, but we're probably on the hook for several billion dollars a year for three, four, five years over and above whatever we're spending just to answer the mail on that. But I would also say, okay, there's other things we ought to be thinking about. Youth bulge in Africa. You know, my view on migration is like, we're going to promise migration until countries hit $8,000 per capita. So you had some suggestions here in addition to what you said. You said something about, talk about debt relief. Because I think, is there a conversation about to be had about, we had debt relief 20 years ago. Is this a moment where we need to have debt relief? Totally. So I think debt relief is the smartest thing you can do in one sense. Nothing has to happen to move the money from A to B. As soon as a country confidently gets relief from debt, they can put it straight into their public health systems. They're holding it back in their treasuries. They're holding it back because they're worried that actually the relief is short term and the payments are just going to accrue and the bondholders are going to be unhappy. So unless they get a level of debt relief that gives them confidence, then they're not actually willing to do it. If you do give them confidence, and what does that mean? First, you got to cancel, not suspend, because suspension just means the minister postponed it by two or three years. Yeah. Second, you got to talk to the credit agencies because a lot of these countries, particularly in Africa, they won't take the shorter term relief you offer them because it'll hurt their credit ratings and they won't be able to get private credit. And there's just too much money out there, either from the Chinese or from private creditors that they want access to. They don't trust the big money is going to come from multilateral or bilateral institutions in the government sense. So we need smarter and more ambitious thinking on debt. So when it comes to debt or special drawing rights, which is another way to unlock trillions of dollars, or scaling up aid three or four times so that we can compete for the attention of countries who are looking at the Chinese offer, it's not looking really good unless you get some more attention to the issue now, which is why I wrote the book. It's going to need a level of pushing What you hear from the Biden folks who are internationalists and who know we need big solutions is, yeah, we agree with you, but you're going to have to make us do it. Politically, it's not feasible. Ah, okay. So here's what I would say. I would say that I feel like I'm like the George Bailey of globalization, staying in the village in Bedford Falls, trying to stop a run on the bank on American leadership at the savings and loan on American leadership. That's what I watch that film every Christmas. That's my favorite movie. (laughs) There's this fabulous book about the history of the Marshall Plan and Arthur Vandenberg, who I knew nothing about three years ago. I'm fascinated by Arthur Vandenberg and Henry Cabot Lodge. I just finished a biography of Henry Cabot Lodge. These are internationalist Republicans who really helped build the UN and others. They basically said, we're going to have to scare the hell out of the American people. So my view is we have to decide. You, When I went to them and said, are you good with having the Chinese run the world? Republicans will say, I don't want that. So I think we have to like come up with a set of steps My view is the COVID vaccine thing is part of that. So I've moved them on that. I keep playing the China card. And I'm not sure we're going to max out the China card anytime in the next 10 years. And I don't think it's irresponsible to do it because I think it's true. So my view is I think that people are open to all sorts of stuff. If you frame it as you need to do this as part of responding to the China threat. If you said, how am I going to move Lindsey Graham or Tom Cotton or Marco Rubio? It's going to be that. Am I getting Mike Gallagher? How am I going to move him? It's going to be that. Paul McCall, these are serious people. McCall, we can move them. McConnell, we can move these folks, but it's going to be that. Fine. That's fine. I love it. I'll tell you why. Because I think what's in your writing as well as what you're saying now, at the heart of the great game thing is two phenomenal development principles that will be really good for a lot of people. One is 
if you want to win against China, you got to think long term. You can't think tomorrow because this is going on for decades. So it will get people. To this say, is this is a thirty-year project, right? Well, this is a thirty-year project. Yes, at least. So that's good. Second thing is, if you start from the question, the real question is. Developing country leadership and populations have a choice now, and they didn't have a choice before. They, ten years ago, even ten years ago, they didn't have a choice. Today, they have a yeah. choice. So the fact that we're starting from their choice and how they would like to develop, and we want to provide a better offer than yes. is being offered by China. The power dynamics in that whole sentence are wonderful. They start by placing yeah. them at the center, and they recognize that they're choosing. We're coming from different places to use the lingo. But we're kind of arriving at an interesting, similar zip code. So I think this is a to be continued because I know we've got to end it at 345. This is great. I always think you're a really interesting, creative mind. It's always interesting to be around you. I bought your book retail. I read it. I was interesting. I even marked it up. I took it seriously. All right, Paul, this was great. Thank you. What a pleasure. Nice to see you. Thanks, Dan. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog 